A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, there was a man named Luke Skywalker. We meet Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars movies on a family farm as a young adult in episode four, and we quickly begin to learn something about Luke Skywalker. There is something interesting about his life that hooks us, that draws us in. He's just like us. And I know what you're thinking. No, it's not because you also have the force or know how to yield a lightsaber. See, on the family farm, Luke hears for the first time about the gifts and the talents that he possesses. He learns for the first time about the Force and holds a lightsaber. He learns about the dark side and about the rebellion and about how he is actually an important part in this story. We like Luke Skywalker because he's so familiar to us. He experiences throughout all of the Star Wars movies the tension that lives deep inside of each one of us, the tension between knowing that he has been given gifts, talents, abilities, things that he is good at, while also experiencing the fear, the anxiety, the tension of living that out. We can identify with him because a lot of our lives we struggle with being able to do something with, to act upon, to build on the things that we are good at, that we have talent in, without being paralyzed by fear. We fear, like Luke, rejection from his father. We fear coming up short, losing the battle. In a way, our lives are defined by having the confidence, having the ability to live out our gifts and talents, taking the opportunities that these things provide for us in a way that leads us to trust God with them. The key that the Bible gives us is that we will only have the ability to do this, to take the gifts and talents and to do something with them in a way that doesn't lead to fear, anxiety, unless we trust God. And so this morning, we see this parable, which is, as I discovered this week, very much like an onion. You start peeling back the layers, and you think you've gotten all of them off, and then more and more come. Right? They just keep, until you get, you start really pulling things apart and getting deeper and deeper and deeper. See, this is what this parable is for us. It's not something we can look at for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning and get it. This has to live with us. This has to wreck us before we will be able to really understand what Jesus is saying. So I invite you to join me as we consider what this parable has to speak to us about stewardship, about about letting go of the things that we have to serve God with them. So we will look at three things this morning. One is the invitation of the giver. The second is the vulnerability of investment. And the third is the grace of the master. So this parable comes near the end of Jesus' life and ministry. So he's heading towards Jerusalem. 
And he will face, he knows, in the not too distant future, uh, the cross, and he will die, and he will, after rising again from the dead, ascend to heaven and will leave his disciples, entrust them with the mission of his life, which is to love people and places and things to life. That's what he's been doing throughout his whole life. And so he is preparing his disciples to take this on as their own. And so he tells them a few different stories, and this is one of them. That's why at the beginning of the parable it says, again, is because this comes in a package of three parables that are about living in the Advents, right? After Jesus has risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, and before he's come again to make all things new. And so these parables are actually about being ready. How do we prepare ourselves for Christ's second coming? How do we practice living in this kingdom of God, this rule of God, so that when he comes, we will be ready to enter into the fullness of it, of this kingdom? That's what these parables are about. They're about readiness, this in-between time. And we've been entrusted with, as God says, uh, or Jesus says in this parable, bags of gold. It depends on the translation of the Bible, what, what the, if it's bags of gold or bags of silver. Some of you may be used to hearing different. That's because the, the Greek word for this is talentos, which is used to describe a, a weight of money. It's a certain weight. It's not a type. Um, regardless of that, most Bible scholars would say that, you know, so Jesus describes the story as um, five bags to one, two bags to another, and one bag to the third. Even the person that was given one talent, one bag of either gold or silver, would be in the millions in today's economy. This is an outrageous amount of money. We have to remember that. Even the one that was given one bag of gold was given a lifetime's worth of money to live on, to use. And so we picture, we get this picture of this master who's going on a journey, who's actually entrusting all of his life, all of his possessions, all the things that he has accumulated to his servants. But what does this money represent? Does it represent what we would call gifts of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, or um, spiritual gifts such as uh, speaking in tongues or healing or, or preaching and teaching. These things that we would say God gives to, to people who give their lives to him. Right? We receive spiritual gifts to use for the honor and glory of God's name and, and for the gospel. On the one side, so is it spiritual gifts? Or on the other side... Is it natural gifts, like playing a Beethoven sonata, or charting parabolas in math class, right? or spiking a volleyball so hard you could break bones, or cooing a baby to sleep, which is the hardest of all the things, <laughs> all the natural gifts in the world? What does it mean? I think John Calvin really opens up our eyes to see that this actually doesn't really matter. Calvin says, Christ does not distinguish between natural gifts and gifts of the Spirit. 
For we have neither the power nor skill which should not be acknowledged as having been received from God. And therefore, whoever determines to give God his share back will leave nothing for himself. Now, I know some of you ran the Road to Hope uh, race yesterday. Some the one-kilometer run, some the five-kilometer run. Um, and so I want you to picture yourself as running a race right now. Okay, think about this. Um, you know, we would say, oh, I, you know, I crossed the finish line in 26 minutes. I did that, right? Oh, what a, what a good time that was that I got. And I think what Calvin is saying that we have to think about is, really, is that you? Think about that. Did you cross the finish line in 26 minutes? See, because when we start to peel back the layers of the onion, we see that, like, so what did you do to make sure that you had two legs that were attached to your body so that you could run this race? Not a, not a whole lot, right? Okay, well, let's look at, so what, what else goes into running? Well, did you, did you make it possible for your lungs to breathe in oxygen and then transfer that into energy somehow that your body pumped through your through the veins into to your legs in a very complex chemical reaction that enabled you to propel yourself forward to get that 26 minute time probably didn't even know that was happening while you're running right or you know how much did you do to design your brain to be intimately connected with your body in such a way that you were able to pace yourself through the race so you wouldn't push yourself too hard off the start and then collapse on the side of the trail halfway through, right? When we really start to drill down, we see that what Calvin is saying here is true. That if we were to give God's share of, of, of the, the part of the gifts that he's given to us back to him, we wouldn't really be left with anything for ourselves. And yet, we also see that each person in this parable is given a different type, quantity of gifts. There are some that yesterday at the Road to Hope race that ran a lot faster than other people did. It may be easy to think, you know, in this parable, when we see the different amounts of money given to each servant, how unfair. How come God gave different amounts of gifts to different people based on their, their abilities? How, do, how, could, how could that be fair? That's favoritism. See, every parent knows that you divide things evenly between the children. That way there's no fighting between them. But, but I think that what this does is it shows us a few things about God. See, the Bible is, is always teaching us about God and about what he is like. And if we think about this a little bit, I think there's two things that we can notice about how God divides up the gifts between, or how the master divides up the gifts between the servants. He doesn't give equal amount because he gives based upon their ability. And when he gives based upon their ability, it means that he knows intimately what each servant is capable of. He doesn't give them too much outside of their comfort zone, outside of their means to do something with. He doesn't give them too little. He gives just the right amount for each person because he knows how to set his servants up for success. He's on their side. Second thing, we notice that the Lord's response to the one that takes five bags, turns it into ten, 
and two bags and turns it into four is exactly the same. You see, we live in a culture that um, we see that, oh, more is better. So the one that turns five into ten must be a better person than the one that turns two into four. But that's not the way that God thinks. God doesn't think about quantity. God thinks about faithfulness. The invitation we see of the master in this parable is to take the things that God has given to us, entrusted to us, the spiritual and natural gifts, and to be faithful with them. So this leads us to our second point. What is the vulnerability of investment? Because we look at the two servants who respond to the master's entrusting, they instantly begin to put this money to work. They went at once, the text says, and put the master's money to work. One person I was reading this week put it like this, said, faithfulness is not to be passive waiting, but getting on with the job and making most of the opportunities entrusted to us. So if we're called to be faithful with what God has given to us, what does it mean to make the most of these opportunities? What does it mean to, to take the talents that God has given to and invest them faithfully? Well, I wonder if oftentimes we think of opportunities to invest as, like if you're at a racetrack, and, and, you, and you see these race cars go flying by. I don't know if you've ever, you've ever done that before. And they, they fly by so fast. And we can often think of opportunities as being so easy to miss, right? It's like, boom, oh, there's one that goes by. Ah, oh, I'll miss that one. Okay, well, I'll wait for the next one. And boom, oh, that one flew by. Oh, missed that one too. But I don't think that opportunity of investment of our gifts and talents is, is like that. Instead, I think faithfulness has a lot to do with, with a learning, a learning to see the world how God sees it, and participating in that. So this week, I, I got to visit Hamilton uh, District Christian High School for the Pastor's Appreciation Breakfast, which uh, is uh, a breakfast with the additional bonus of being able to visit as many of our students in their classrooms as possible in a shortened period of time. Uh, but also uh, on this was, uh, was a little talk by one of the teachers at HD, uh, Mr. Webb. I don't know if some, some of you may know Mr. Webb. And uh, he, gave, he gave a little talk about res what restorative practice looks like at HD and why HD is committed to restorative practices. And I think this ties in with this parable this morning. So he said that uh, restoration is key to investing ourselves and our gifts and our talents in God's world. How we see restoration is key. He said a lot of times people, people think of restoration like a car. You take an old car and you work on it to make it like it was before. So if it's a 1950s, you know, Chevy truck that's all beat up, you'd take it apart, you'd rip it apart, you'd redo the upholstery, you'd do all that stuff to make it like it was before. But he said, we, we have to think of restoration as differently because the Bible tells us that it's different. And he gave the example, him and his wife bought a 1950s bungalow. It needed work. 
It was run down. And they began the work of restoring this. But he said that they, they had in their mind not let's make it like it was, but let's make it better than it was. Let's take this house and put our creative minds to work. What can we do with what we have been given to make this place more beautiful than when it was originally created? And I think this is a beautiful picture for how God actually created the world. If you think about it, Right? What is God inviting us to participate in? What is the story of the Bible? The story of the Bible is that God created a garden. Right? He created a garden called Eden, and he placed Adam and Eve in it, and he told them to take what the garden was, the raw materials of the garden, and to make something of it, to do something with it. And the picture that we get at the end of the Bible which is Eden 2.0, right, in the book of Revelation, is not a garden, but a city. A city is a garden with raw materials worked and cultivated and made into something better than it was before. God said that creation was very good. He didn't say it was perfect, and he placed human beings in it to make it better. This has everything to do with what the master is inviting the, the, the servants into, right? He's, he's given them talents, things that are good, but he invites them to make them better, to do something with them, to get busy investing them. Notice that this is exactly the opportunity the way to see the world that the third servant missed. How did he respond to the talent? The text says that he said, you know, master, after he after buried the, the talent in the ground, right, hid it away, he said, master, I knew you were a hard man. Now, hard in this instance means strong and powerful. Okay, I knew you were a strong man. I knew you were a powerful man. Harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed, which describes his, his sovereignty over all things, that he, he has his, his hands everywhere in that world. Not his shiftiness. It's not meaning that the master is shifty. He's, he's sovereign. So, the servant says, because you were strong and powerful and sovereign, I was afraid. And so I went and I hid. I hid the gold in the ground. So now take what belongs to you. And by burying this talent, he says to the master, or sorry, he says to himself, I can't let go of this. I can't take this investment and trust that it's going to be okay. What if I fail this hard strong, powerful man, this man that knows about everything, who has his hands everywhere. How, how do I know I'm not going to come up short? How do I know I'm not going to fail? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this, and I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to bury it in the ground. That way, I know that I won't screw this up. I can't screw it up. If I bury it, I can't screw it up, because there's nothing to screw up. See, this servant always kept it in his control, never pushed himself, never tried to do something with it, never put himself out there, never stepped out of his comfort zone, 
He was dominated by fear. Fear. Fear that he couldn't do enough to, to please his master. Fear that he couldn't trust master saying, hey, I'm giving this to you because I think you're capable of doing something with it. He said, no, me capable? No way. I, I so he hit it. But he was also dominated by pride. I think there's a little bit of pride in the way that this, this guy responds to the master. He says, he doesn't come to him saying, I'm so sorry, I was so scared. I, 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 you know, I, tr- I thought about doing something with it, and then I thought, what if I let you down? I can't let you down. No, he said, take what's yours. Right? There's no apology. He actually, I think, thinks he's justified in doing what he's doing. Like, oh, this master asked way too much of me. I am completely justified just to, to bury this talent and give it back to him. So take what's yours. You asked me to do an impossible task. He misses the opportunity. Because reality is, though, that the opportunity of God's kingdom to see the world as God sees it is always going to be backwards to us. It's always going to look like the foolish way to do things. All we have to do to see this is to look at how Jesus invested himself in the world. See, Jesus was the physical embodiment of God's way of life. And we see that Jesus Christ told us that the greatest person in God's kingdom, the one who invested his life in, in loving and serving the poor, that was who was the greatest, emptying himself of his gifts and talents for the good of others, not for the good of himself. Those, see, when Jesus talks about the law, about how God commands us to live, he always summarizes it by saying to love people, right? Jesus summed up the law by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or in John, he tells his disciples another summary of the law. He says, a new command I give you to love one another. Or on the cross, which is the clearest picture of the life of Jesus and what he was all about, Charles Spurgeon sums it up by saying, in the greatest act of love in the history of the universe, Jesus stayed. We see Jesus in his life loving other people, even at the most extreme cost to ourselves, his life. That's how far he took this investment of love is pouring himself out for the good of others, using the gifts and the talents entrusted to him and investing them in the currency of God's kingdom. That's what it looks like to do it. And this goes exactly opposite with the way that our world tells us to use our talents, which is you have to, you have to build them up for yourself. So you, 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 you put up these walls of protection around yourself so that you stay safe. Whereas what we see Jesus inviting us into is, is tearing down these walls, entering into relationships of vulnerability, right? Pouring ourselves out, even to the cost of hurting ourselves personally. And so we, we see the struggle in the third servant, don't we? This struggle to be open with the gifts that God has given to us. Because, because it leads us into great vulnerability. It puts fear in our face of, what if this does fall flat on me? What if, what if I actually can't trust God? See, if we, we are stuck 
as the third servant often. And because of that, we miss opportunities to enter into the joy and the happiness of the master, which is the goal of this parable. And so how do we overcome this? How do we overcome our fear? You know, I began by talking about Luke Skywalker and how he was, he was often in this tension between seeing the gifts, the talents that he had, and being, being completely overcome by fear of what if I fall short? So how do we overcome this? Well, we look to the master. Because the master shows us his love in this parable. You notice the third servant says, I knew you were a hard man. And when the master responds to that servant, he leaves that out. He doesn't describe himself as hard, as as tough, because he isn't. He's a gracious master. And we see how gracious and loving the master is in the days following. When Jesus Christ saw his disciples throughout his life misusing, misunderstanding, missing opportunities to see the world as he does, failing to love God, failing to invest themselves in the good of others, burying their talents in the ground and playing it safe. And instead of saying to them, you wicked and lazy servants, you are cast out. He didn't do that. Instead, in the greatest act of love in the history of the world, Jesus Christ took upon himself the consequence. The consequence for misusing gifts, for burying talents, for missing the opportunities that we've been given. And he died. See, when Christ was on the cross, he yelled out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That word forsaken means abandoned. It means cast out. See, Christ was cast out from the Trinity, the, 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 the perfect community of love that existed ever since the beginning of, of the world, of, of time. And he was cast out from that so that we could be invited in, despite the fact that we constantly miss opportunities despite the fact that we fail to love God and love our neighbors perfectly, despite the fact that we don't use our talents the way that God has has intended that we use them all the time, Christ took upon himself the consequence for these. And you know what that does for us? It frees us. It frees us from being dominated by fear by being afraid, what happens if I fail the master? Jesus has taken those consequences on himself, and he's died. That means our judgment day has been moved to the past. It's been moved to the past. And so now, through Christ, and through having faith in him as our Savior, you know, by, by confessing, Lord, we, we know we misuse our gifts, and so we, we know we need Jesus Christ who has done this for us, who has used the gifts perfectly to glorify God and has taken the consequences upon himself, we can hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, share in the master's happiness. The cross changes everything. It sets us free to use the gifts that God has given us without fear, without anxiety, because we have a gracious master.
Someone who did this very well, who I think is an example for us, is Mother Teresa. And she, uh, you know, in her life, poured herself out for the good of others. And she wrote a poem called, uh, I think it's called Love Anyways, or Do Anyways. And I think it leaves us with a challenge. She said, people are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, some could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they might be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people may forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. God calls us to be faithful. And we can without fear. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for being a gracious master, one who knows us intimately, who gives to us graciously, and who saves us so lovingly. Lord, we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to to strengthen us, to, to be able to trust you, to invest in the way that you've called us to live, into the the courtesy of your kingdom, to love people, to love places, to love things, to life, to make them better than they were before. Lord, we need courage and wisdom to do this well. We pray that you'd give it to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.